Dead Cat. Uh, this is Eric Newcomer. I'm here with Tom Dotan. And we have Max Chafkin, my old colleague from Bloomberg. Uh, he's an editor at Business Week, and he has his book out, The Contrarian, uh, profile of Peter Thiel. And we're excited to get into it with him. I, I think I know the answer to this. My first question is very simple. Who does Peter Thiel see himself as in Lord of the Rings? Or like, which, <laughs> which character does he seem to admire most in your estimation? Oh, man, I want to hear who you think. I, I, I honestly, I don't know. I, I don't think my Tolkien uh, my Tolkien instincts are strong enough to give you a great idea. Oh, I was just like Sauron. I mean, he names the, you know, Palantir. Palantir, sure. You know, oh, right. and, and it's just like, didn't you have, you had a quote from him later where he's setting up Gan- or, or there was that story where Gandalf's the bad guy, or what, what's that little right well, that you have? I, yeah, you'd be tempted to say he's Gandalf or something, right? But but yeah, but but there are two data points that, that work against that. One of which is that Palantir, like the main Palantir in Lord of the Rings, is is Sauron's orb. So it's like a an orb for evil, and he has talked up this fan fiction book. Uh, I, I think it's called The Last Ringbearer. It was originally published in Russian, and you, you can buy it now. But in uh, in The Last Ringbearer, Sauron is the is the hero. Right. And the elves, I think the elves are like fascists, like anti-tech fascists or something. I um, But in any case, I, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like with a lot of these things with Teal, people end up reading into his interest in various, like, philosophers or, you know, religious subjects or whatever. And, and there isn't always... Uh, as much of a there there as as I think his fans would like. So at a couple points, Teal has offered his sort of fam- favorite passage from Lord of the Rings. There's there's a quote that was in his high school yearbook, and then he's he's used that at least one other time in an interview. And I, I went looking for the passage, right? But it's not actually from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> it's from a movie that came out, a cartoon movie uh, of The Hobbit, um, uh, created by the creator of Thundercats. <laughs> I think it came out in the mid '70s. Like that's that. I'm it's actually sure a pretty that, good movie. Yeah, but anyway, but it's not. Again, it's not like some deep what's the quote off do you remember the gist of it or i have his yearbook somewhere around here but it's something like the greatest adventure is yours to make the greatest adventure is what lies it begins with the greatest adventure and it's about this it's about the idea that like you know your life is yours alone and you can you have these choices which is a big theme in sort of the aspirational parts of teal's philosophy well the problem with overanalyzing Teal, which I'm eager to do, is that sometimes, yeah, he likes to put stuff out there and he's happy that people want to like over extrapolate from it and sort of story craft around it. But then other times you have him saying very simple things and he's secretly trying to take down Gawker or, you know, there are moments where he'll say sort of happy, benign thing and then he's not. So (laughs) he's good at sort of shifting. I mean, it does, it feels like in the book, you know, you sort of go through periods where you think Teal's sort of playing it safe and periods where he's like sort of a little more unhinged. Maybe you wouldn't use that word. I don't know. What, yeah, what, do you, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, 100%. And, and, and I mean, just because, you know, sometimes like his, his fans like, you know, read too far, I would argue, that doesn't mean that, I mean, like, I think he's a really amazing packager of his own mythology. Um, he's also somebody who is like, uh, you know, of course, very incisive in, in in thinking about the future, and just like really good at kind of you know creating these the provocations that that people react to, and that he you know ultimately make money from. I mean, the weird thing about Teal is that 
Okay, so he's he's known as this venture capitalist, right? And that's how, you know, we're talking about him now, probably, and how most people think of him. But I mean, he was originally a hedge fund manager. And I think in some ways that that may be more how he still sees himself. And, you know, in this period where he was, you know, making many of the investments that, you know, ultimately would like go on to define Silicon Valley that that we all know, you know, Facebook being the the primary one, he was best known as as a hedge fund guy. And he was betting on the future, you know, through Founders Fund. But he was also betting in a lot of ways against the future, at least against America's future. Future, through his hedge fund, where he was, you know, shorting the U.S. economy, betting that the price of oil was going to, you know, was going to go crazy and, and essentially betting on uh, collapse. And, and when I talk to people, you know, who've been involved with his with, with his finances, with both these portfolios, they, they talk about him always having kind of like an optimistic and a pessimistic portfolio, which, of course, is like uh, that's hedge fund behavior. Right? Well, a constant theme in the book is like he has a great thing. And then he's like, oh, let's pull back a little bit. You know, it's too much. Or like with PayPal, it seemed like he was selling it and then betting against. Yeah, well, he he definitely doesn't buy into the kind of like tech mythology of like, just go as big as you can as, you you know, just go crazy big. And like, either it's like the, it, either it's enormous or it's a complete strikeout, right? He He's constantly um, seeking to kind of trim his sales, do, you know, do kinds of like investor things. And I mean, I, I think that, I mean, I think that thinking is part of what created Founders Fund. You know, I mean, when I was starting out covering tech, like right in 2005, the big conversation that was going on among entrepreneurs was the way that like, you know, investor interests were not aligned with founder interests, where where, like investors are going to constantly push you to, you know, swing for the fences. Whereas like, if you you have your entire net worth, like tied up in a a startup, like that's definitely not in your best interest to, to just be like, you know, being worth $100 million dollars, is still really, really, really good. Like I, I know being a billionaire is great, but and I and I think that that was kind of the dynamic that was playing out between Teal and Mike Moritz in like you know two thousand two thousand one. It's like why they sort of were at odds and and kind of like why Teal like ultimately uh, started Founders Fund. I think is that is like this sense that entrepreneurs should be able to like take care of themselves in a, in a more, you know, yeah, just in a, in a more direct way. And, and, and that turns into this whole mythology that about, you know, we never fire a founder and, um, and so on. So I, I want to rewind a little bit here because I came into this book with uh, an idea that I had, and I'd expressed this on the show before, that I'm not sure Peter Thiel is as important a, a figure as sometimes the media makes him out to be. That he obviously, because of his like you say, very neatly packaged persona and and self-expression and, of course, his role in the Gawker lawsuit, that we've had a bit of a fascination with him that maybe exceeds his actual power and presence. And as I was reading your book, I was trying to get a sense as to, like, who is he within the sphere specifically of Silicon Valley? Because politics is obviously a whole other discussion. Spending all the time that you did meeting with Peter Thiel a couple of times and, and interviewing a lot of his friends, people close to him, where do you think he sits within just the culture of Silicon Valley? I mean, do you consider him a product of Silicon Valley or is he? does he exist in contrast to it? I mean, I think that he 
is like the single most important cultural influence on Silicon Valley. So, you know, I, I don't know if he's the most important investor. Like, I, you know, he's obviously not the richest guy. I, there are probably arguments you could make about Elon Musk, I suppose, on, on this cultural dimension. But I think like a lot of the kind of key ideas that are just sort of accepted, not just by kind of like right wingers and free, you know, free thinkers and intellectual, the people who are aligned with Teal politically in tech, which I, which is a bit, I think it's a bigger percentage of the tech industry than people realize. Oh, for sure. But that it that it is these ideas are largely widely accepted even among people who disagree with him, you know, on Trump and things like that. Which ideas specifically? So, the idea of tech as monopoly capitalism, that you should get as big as you can, as fast as you can, you know, that companies should should pursue monopolies, that disruption at, for its own sake is a good thing, a social good, not just something that happens, you know, by accident, where like, oops, like we, we accidentally did something wrong, sorry, we're going to fix it, but where breaking the law or breaking norms or, you know, burying an old institution right. is, a, is a good that we should pursue. Uh, and I'm sure there are others, but like, this notion that founders are a privileged class, that right. that founders should be in charge of companies, and that probably, like, the, the right. most— That's ex- the Randian stuff, right? I mean, that's yeah. the pure objectivist theology. But it also makes the argument in the book super interesting. Because, right, if you say this, the Silicon Valley view is that founders are all important. The book makes the argument that actually Teal's, like, a really political guy, and he— even when he was the CEO of PayPal, he was like mostly interested in, he wanted to use money at PayPal to invest. Then he leaves PayPal, he wants to hedge against it. Just, he very much seems like financial in a way that he talks, or at least the Silicon Valley mythos is. You know. Well, and the fact that he kind of backs into being a tech character. A hundred percent, yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, he, he goes to Stanford, his initial you know jobs are within the banking and finance world, and then by dint of his just not succeeding very much there, he, he, you know, he kind of just ends up in a happenstance meeting with Max Levchin and, and, and PayPal results from that. But he's not like a technologist to his core in the way that Steve Jobs truly believed that, you know, fucking around with people's phones in the 70s could lead towards, you know, a, a computer revolution. Although was that Jobs? I mean, that's... that's sure. He I was mean, a packager you know, too. Right. I mean, that's Wozniak, really. And Jobs right. kind of I mean, I, I don't know. Fair, I think we similar dynamic. To, it's yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, Steve Jobs cared about product, though. I mean, product 100%. is part of being a founder. And art. Yeah. I mean, there, there was a unifying philosophy that was centered around technology beyond just a, a way to enrich yourself. But oh, anyway, 100 percent. I think that's yeah. an important point of departure. You know, and I, as I say in the book, I think that's an important point of, uh, point of departure where, you know, kind of like the PayPal mafia way, you know, differs from the the jobs. Right. So, Steve Jobs is a good a good manager in that he gets output and it's very hierarchical. The way you paint Peter Thiel is that he's the best manager when he lets everybody just like experiment with shit. And then when it's too hierarchical, it goes poorly. Steve Jobs also did drugs. (laughs) Um, Well, so I think, uh, I I mean, I I think, so Thiel did in some ways kind of, I guess, luck into it. I do think he was, he went looking for, Max Levchin, it wasn't, I mean, he obviously met him by chance, but I think if you look at Teal's career, and this is kind of funny for a guy who's like all about, you know, not following the herd, the thing that he seems sort of most good at is not so much not following the herd, but selling into the herd or selling into a bubble, right? There's two ways you can make money in a bubble. You could either, you know, short it or you can sell into it. And Teal often is is kind of spotting these bubbles and figuring out like clever ways 
to to profit from them. And like I, I would put PayPal in that category. It's not like PayPal was like a novel idea. There were like 30 or 40 or whatever other similar payments companies. Palantir, I think, was basically a selling into a bubble. And that that was like data mining in the wake of 9-11. And I think you can, and Trump even was kind of like that, where he sort of saw that there was this growing you know, uh, right-wing movement, especially online, and that it was more powerful than people realized. But I do think, given that he's all, he's he's like really focused on bubbles and, and spotting them, it, it, that probably is part of the reason why, like he's he's been so successful in those ways. At the heart of his worldview, it's funny, like you call the book, you know, The Contrarian, and that's such a common Silicon Valley uh, posture. It's not really, uh, you know, it's not an ideology. It's a, it's a response. It's like a debate tactic. But at the same time, you, like I feel like you easily could have called the book like the the contradictarian, because <laughs> so much of his what he stands for stands in contrast to the companies that he's built. Right, he's this Randian libertarian who also profited enormously off of the military. Professed, professed, right, and even right, that, right. I, so, yeah. so that I mean, maybe even gets even more to like the contradiction there. But let's pretend he's somewhat honest in that belief, and yet he profited enormously with Palantir off the military-industrial complex. And then you know he he raged against cultural the move towards like culture wars. Uh, in the 60s, and yet his backing of Trump, who exists strictly as an avatar of the culture wars and like the riling up of culture fights in the Republican Party, uh, would seem to stand in contrast to that. I mean, did you find like a coherence to the way he views things that makes you understand some aspect of his success or, or at least his influence? Or is it just, I mean, is it purely just contrarianism as a, as a, argumentative tactic. Well, I picked that title kind of for exactly the reason you say, Uh, you know, Thiel thinks contrarianism is an ideology, right? Like his whole like Girardian, let's like not follow the herd. He he tries to turn it into a life philosophy, but as you say, it's limiting, and it's and I think it's it's maybe limiting in a way that's irreconcilable. I think there are lots of stories that people tell for like how to unify all these like bizarrely you know contradictory beliefs and like obvious instances of just pure you know hypocrisy. You know, we brought a founders fund. You know, founders fund has pushed founders out. Like, there's just lots of ways in which. <laughs> <laughs> and they love to invest in C rounds, like for for like uh, we're contrary. It's like oh, you you wait for momentum from top VCs. And then you invested a billion or so, you know, that's like their strategy. Yeah. But I, so to me, like one obvious thing, and I think, you know, maybe it's the whole thing is money. I mean, I think Peter Thiel cares a lot about his his money and his wealth. And, and I think in a lot of ways, like this, you know, this whole kind of like ideological system and, and his his self-presentation and the mythology. And, you know, there are sort of two mythologies, Peter Thiel as a hero and Peter Thiel as this kind of, uh, you know, vi- villain. I think Thiel has kind of amped up both of those on purpose. And, and I think often it's the purpose is like just to make money. I, I do think there are, you know, like ideological threads. And, and of course, there, I don't think it's just like pure, like contradictoriness. I mean, I think Teal is, you know, 
super libertarian, especially when it comes to, you know, the rights of tech billionaires. I mean, Teal thinks that tech billionaires should rule the world. He's libertarian think, in that he should be able to do whatever he wants. And and like that idea, of course, is, is one that's like been widely accepted, not just by uh, right wingers in, in the tech industry, but by like a lot of left wingers think like, yeah, if the world were working right, like tech billionaires would, would be ruling the world. Hence, like Larry Page saying he's going to give his money away to like Elon Musk. Or I mean, you know, there are lots of examples that you could point to to show how widespread that worldview is. I do think he's super right wing on immigration, like legitimately thinks that, you know, we should, you know, close the border, build the wall, you know, uh, probably throw out some of the undocumented immigrants. And and it always does feel like the thing you can't say is like racist stuff. I mean, not like, right. I mean, just when, I mean, and they were a little more transparent about it sort of at the Stanford days where it's like, what can you talk about? It's like affirmative action type argument. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, would you talk, say that? or uh, I right? think the way I've been, I try to, I thought about it is sort of like white identity politics, right? This sense that like white people are, are the, you know, somehow the oppressed class, which of course is pretty racist. And uh, I mean, like, you know, in the context of our history and culture and everything like that. And I do think there's some, there are definite, you know, kind of racial overtones to the way that Teal talks about, has talked about diversity in the past and the way even now he and his allies, you know, talk about the West and things like that. I mean, you know, besides the the sort of hardcore immigration stuff, right? The other thing is like this, this cultural conservatism, which is kind of another version of what, of I think what you're saying, Eric, like this sense that, you know, actually the really oppressed people are, are, are these white tech guys who like can't you know, say who are who are like afraid to say what they believe because they might be considered racist or something like that. But then he goes after Gawker because they say what they want. It, I mean, I know we're just going to say he's contradictory all day, but it is a speech on the left that's of the style that he professes to want on the right. He has a whole crusade to shut down. Yeah, well, which is part of the reason why I think the money thing is like a really important right part of that story. And I think anytime you drift too far away from that story around Teal, like you, you're, you're kind of missing it. Like he's, he is a person who is motivated by maybe not exclusively, but partly at least often by his own, you know, what it's going to mean for his own interests. And he's good at making money. He is. He's not the best, but. No, no, he's not. And he, and, and I think he's not in part because he's pursued this, often this like social sort of more, more conservative approach towards his investments. I mean, he also clearly wants uh, power and influence and, and, you know, influence as a, as a, you know, quote unquote, public intellectual, which is the phrase that he, you know, usually uses, but, but, you know, political influence. I mean, that's kind of where he started his career. He's, he, his, his original entrepreneurial venture was, was political activism. And I think that is still, you know, a big part of kind of like who he is and, and how he sees himself and, and what he wants. And I don't, I don't know, like the way I was, I thought about it during the book was like, you have these two projects. One is a political project, and then there's a business project. They work together, right? It's kind of like the uh, Koch Industries and the Koch Brothers kind of libertarian political donations, where Teal is is creating these companies. It's not an industrial conglomerate like Koch. It's a post-industrial conglomerate uh, of Teal's you know, tech holdings and various investments and crypto holdings or whatever. And that's throwing cash off and feeding money into this political project, which is designed to, you know, uh, create a regulatory environment that is um, more hospitable to those companies continuing to make money and more hospitable to Peter Thiel limiting his tax exposure and, and, and such. So it, and, and that feeds back into the business thing. So like they're related. I do, I do think a lot of, uh, 
left-leaning centrist founders like to forget about that fact. I mean, there's founders fund is his money. It serves like his political project. How how effective is his political project uh, if you compare it to other right wing billionaires, like specifically the Kochs? Because uh, okay, in one sense we have Trump, which you know g- good investment that that turned out pretty well for him, and it was a contrarian bet. But he also, in your book, you say he supported Ron Paul in 2012. That was obviously a bust. Noah Hawley seems to be his guy right now. Josh Hawley. Josh yeah. Hawley. I, I do this a lot, actually. Josh Josh Hawley, uh, not the guy who created the FX Fargo series. <laughs> yeah, Josh Hawley uh, is his guy now. He's barely registering in like the straw polls for, for Iowa in 2024. And, you know, the, the president is just one line of political influence. But do you see a broad and successful network of lobbying efforts on his part or, or the PACs that he invests in? Do those do those get results? I mean, how how or, would you or rank relative him? to the Koch brothers? So yeah, I, I think, think what's interesting. Framing. So what's interesting about Teal, right? And I think this is a reason why he's he's not taken maybe as seriously as he should be, you know, in D.C., is that he, he it's pretty disorganized right. and he doesn't have like a normal beltway apparatus. Like I think that like Reed Hoffman's stuff is more kind of organized and a little bit more traditional than than Teal's. His has been sort of, you know, weirdly ad hoc. Like the Ron Paul thing was done by these outsiders. Like it was like a guy, as I talk about in the book, it was like a guy who'd done infomercials and, and somebody who's in the kind of right wing tech world rather than, you know, somebody who really came out of either the libertarian movement or, you know, DC politics. I mean, the Coke thing took time, right? I mean, David Koch, he ran for president unsuccessfully, I think, in, in 1980. You know, it, it, just because, like, it doesn't, just because, like, w- you know, there haven't been tons of of political results to point to doesn't mean that, you know, he isn't making an impact. I mean, and I think, like, the way these kind of, like, ideological projects work, like, it's it's less about any one candidate, and it's more about getting these ideas you know, in the case of the Cokes, right, it was like energy deregulation and things like that, getting these ideas, you know, into the mainstream. And of course, now, whatever, there's a lot of pushback against some of these ideas that that Teal has been pushing, I'd argue, pretty successfully. I mean, I think that Teal is still kind of like an emerging force rather than like a, you know, rather than like a power in his own right. But I think we're watching his prominence rise. I mean, really? The, yeah, yeah. Because post-Trump. Post Trump, yeah, I, I would th- I would say so, yeah. So like he's given already twenty twenty two, right? He's committed twenty twenty million dollars plus, which is like ten times like what he's given in any previous election. And he wants the bad stuff, like he wants the Republican Party to stay Trump in a way, not to go back to whatever the business uh, oh. world of the Republicans was. Yeah, yeah, he's very much against the Coke version of Republican politics. He wants the Trumpy, you know, hard right immigration, uh, build the wall, you know, cancel, cancel culture, um, and, and, you know, pursue, you know, nationalistic industrial policy, probably, you know, lots more contracts for, you know, Palantir and Anderil and, Again, uh, and so on. Hysterical, because this is all in contrast to... He's not a, supposed- a libertarian. I feel yeah. like that's, just forget about it. He's not, like... Yeah, I mean, it's pure identity politics, which I understand. I mean, from your book, you mentioned goes back to his days at the at the review. So it's not completely new to him, but it's it's just so funny to me for like a capitalist to be banking entirely on a version of the Republican Party that is strictly about, 
you know, a grievance politics and, and, and identity resentment. Yeah, but I mean, that's one way in which Thiel and, you know, Trump, ha- you know, have something in common. I mean, he's somebody who's gone through, has, you know, felt those feelings of of grievance, you know, for much of his life, who has has understood, you know, intuitively, how, you know, how to package those grievances and, and you know, sell them to an audience. Uh, you know, I, I think, like, there are all these temptations, like, to, to sort of psychologize Teal, especially like Teal during his, you know, college years when he when he was engaged, when he and his buddies were engaged in all these, you know, provocations that were, you know, that seemed, you know, racist, sexist, homophobic or whatever. Also just a drip, just seemed no fun to be around. Like, would not <laughs> want to be stuck at any party with this guy. I think it's important to remember that, like, that pose was how you got a job in the Republican Party in the 1980s. Like, that's how you got an internship. Like, that was a path to influence yeah. and power and has been for a long time. I mean, the Stanford Review was kind of modeled on Dinesh D'Souza's paper. You know, there's another version of this at Cornell, the the, the uh, Cornell Review, which is Ann Coulter's paper. Like, he's he's swimming in a in a stream where, where, like, this kind of grievance is what sells. Eric, what's the Harvard version of that? The conservatives? Um, what's the conservative newspaper at Harvard? I forget, honestly. I mean, there were, there were sort of proto sort of Trumpy people who had run around, but I, I think some of, you know, one of them went into like New York's a Barclays or something now. So it seems like he gave it up. I don't know, but you, you'd meet like sort of performer uh, types, but for the most part, it was Harvard Republican club was very, you know, probably, probably didn't even endorse Trump. I forget, you know, it, but I'm sure it exists. Like at Stanford, I mean, first of all, I think Stanford is more conservative than Harvard in some ways. I mean, a hundred percent. Stanford had like that was a big part of the cultural fight. I mean, Harvard's just liberal, you know. I, I don't know. Didn't feel like uh, the these sort of firebrands were were a big presence on campus. What's the influence that Teal has these days on Facebook? You think? I mean, during the height of the Cambridge Analytica stuff and Teal's endorsement of Trump, he became a real flashpoint. And, you know, what role he was playing in terms of, you know, convincing the Trump administration to go easy on them or whatever came up a lot. And in your book, I mean, these days, is he an influential board member at all? Or is it, you know, is is there string pulling happening that we're not seeing? I think he's probably like the only influential board member, maybe with Mark Andreessen or something like that. Like, I I think he's probably one of the most, if not the most influential board members. I think some of this comes from my reporting, but I think also like you could... You know, where, where my understanding is like Zuckerberg likes Teal because Teal gives it to him like it is, right? And and he's like not a he's not a yes man. He's kind of an independent thinker uh, that's valuable to Zuckerberg. I also think whatever there there is a shared bond, right? I mean, he's really the first person who believed in Mark Zuckerberg, and especially you know in the Trump era. Uh, I think Teal was like very important to Facebook's kind of like public facing yeah. persona because he's he's a way to protect Zuckerberg from allegations of being, you know, a, a, a terrible left winger or something like that from from the president. I also think like if Zuckerberg didn't li- like you, you know that Zuckerberg really likes Teal because he hasn't fired him. I mean, maybe that's not the only thing, but like Teal is given and continues to give Facebook a zillion reasons to replace him, and they don't. And and I think like you have to a- ask yourself like why why that is. Like he's he's creating some value for Zuckerberg, um, whether it's just pure kind of like political capital or political capital like and advice. I think it's the latter, but but I, I it's possible it's it's just totally opposed. Here I want to I want to frame up an argument. I mean Silicon Valley just loves to believe it's small. It's more fun and it is small. I mean you can read it through this book where you know half the people running around Silicon Valley, Roloff, like Keith, David Sachs, like you know they were all 
at PayPal, you know, and yeah. even Mike Moritz was the antagonist. You know, it's just yeah. like they're all Jeff Jordan still... too from eBay. It was funny. Yeah. Right. Jeff Jordan comes up with yeah. the acquisition. It's amazing. I mean, it's it's so small. And if you think of it honestly as just like a group of people who associate with each other, so many of them all believe the same things. They're boring. Too many of them are sort of business guys. In this sort of game view of Silicon Valley, I could see why you love Peter Thiel because he's fun. He, you know, maybe he's weird at cocktail Ooh. parties, but he wants to play chess. Like it's unsettling. You always have a story <laughs> after you fun. see him. Like, like so many people are just boring and Peter Thiel's interesting. He's running schemes. Like it makes you feel like he's really doing the stuff a rich person should do in the way that everybody else is sort of boring. Like Eric Schmidt futures, like who cares? Like it doesn't have the same appeal. Um, so if you're one of these rich people who thinks money-making is mostly a game and even the political stuff is about building allies in Washington, you know, if you're raising a bunch of money and 90% of them are from Democrats, why not have 10% of the people have some access to Republicans who are a bunch of crazy people running around the country, whether you like it or not? So I, I feel like that's the view. And then the Trump, as you sort of talked about in the book, makes it sort of a problem because all of a sudden people see that, oh, Teal's like worldview has consequences. <laughs> and then right. you say, you know, some people distance themselves. I mean, you talked about YC, like, I'm skeptical how much that world has really distanced himself. You don't you don't go at length. I'm not saying it's wrong, but they they do as a brand. But those people are all still close oh, to 100%. Peter Thiel, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't I don't think they're distanced at all. Right. I mean, and, right. and Sam. I mean, I know Sam Altman is sort of on the outside now, but he and Thiel are you know clearly very close um, and have been you know for years. Right. And I think you're right. I mean, like the 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 guys who are still involved in YC are are totally kind of on this like you know they are tealists like and proudly so for the most part and i i think your your kind of assessment of like what makes him attractive is like 100% right and it's not just attractive to like rich people but like attractive to young ambitious people the kind of people who want to not you know not just people who already have companies but, but you know the kind of people who want to make it in silicon valley who are who have aspirations and all that and i mean to me like there's stuff in zero to one that really like pushes you know, is pretty far out there, right? Where he's talking about, you know, we, we should just have monopolies um, and you should you should just break <laughs> right. the rules. Um, you know, it's it pretty awesome that, you know, five out of the six uh, PayPal found, or four out of, I forget what he says, you know, we're, we're making bombs. Like, and all that stuff is like really kind of scary, honestly, except it, you, you do have the sense, right, that that everybody believes it anyway. Like, like Eric Schmidt believes this shit anyway, but Eric Schmidt is just trying to like, play a more like subtle political game. And I think that's part of the appeal. Teal is saying the quiet part out loud and people respect him for that. And and I think he gets respect for that even for pe from people who, you know, disagree with him. Obviously, I actually believe that, you know, morality is doing the right thing in face of what <laughs> might be more fun for you or strategic to your company. And that, and to some degree, it fits into the early argument. Downplaying Teal's influence makes it easier to say he's a kook. Like, yes, he's, he has ploys, but he's not like some global puppet master. Therefore, we can still work with him because he's not. And so the longer it seems like a just sort of quirky character versus a Koch brother level thing, uh, Zuck can still keep him on the board or whatever. Yeah, and I think that Teal does. There are ways in which I think Teal's like success is is sometimes overplayed. People tend to overlook the like obvious failures, both failures of um, sort of like investing imagination and 
selling at the wrong time and the fact that he like ran one of the world's most successful hedge funds into the ground in like a span of like, you know, whatever, 18 months or something. And he blames it on Gawker, seemingly? I mean, I think he blames it and he blamed it in part on, on Gawker. And that some of that is just like on an emotional level, right? Like he was off his game. But of course, as the hedge fund was falling apart, it was, there were lots of withdrawals, you know, investors were pulling their money out. Well, it was amazing. He said the world's going to collapse and then he doesn't make the short bets to match it. I mean, he's like, the whole thing's just going to blow up. And then, I mean, but it did seem like they were down for the year, but not as down as the stock market or as other hedge funds. So he didn't do so poorly. No, exactly. Well, it, yeah, he did. What what happened is they lost a bunch of investor money, and then and then they lost all their investors, and so and then it turned right. into a. Well, part um, of that had to do with that completely unhinged investor letter that he sent out, which I imagine if I had money in that kind of fund <laughs> and I see that letter coming through, I'd be a little concerned about how well my money's being managed. Yeah. Uh, which is again interesting when you you start to marry like the business acumen with the personality and like what when that meshes well and when it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, that investor letter is like really I mean if you're at all curious in this in this stuff it's it's worth a look cuz it's just so it's just so out there. It's called the optimistic thought experiment and it's about um the investment thesis is that uh, we're all underrating the, the prospect of apocalypse, which is a thing that you see, you know, running through not just Teal's kind of ideas, but the ideas of like many of his followers, right? They're all looking, you know, this is like why, I would argue, right, anyway, like why David Sachs is like tweeting videos of people breaking into cars in San Francisco. Like they're they're just on the lookout for societal collapse because a big part of the, the overall philosophy is that society is going to collapse and there are going to be these like tech companies that either save it or or save the, the the lucky few who embrace those tech companies. So it's it's like an it is an apocalyptic philosophy. I, I believe right. in Amazon more than America. That's my new position. So I guess I agree <laughs> with them in that. Uh, and he doesn't seem to get along with Bezos. Yeah. So well, so that that that's interesting to me because I you know as as the only person here who lives in San Francisco, um, I, I live in the apocalypse every day. Um, by which I mean like seeing the tweets about San Francisco. <laughs> But uh, it, it's an interesting state of affairs, and I, I, I really did get that from reading your book because, in one sense, tech has never been more powerful than ever, right? The valuation of these companies you know, keep, keeps going up, and yet the people that are running them or the investors seem like they couldn't be more unhappy. And so it's like, in one sense, they couldn't be more comfortable, but they're incredibly unhappy about the state of affairs there. And I, and I wonder if this is just them going back to this idea of, like, you know, whites are the oppressed class— that their their basic worldview is they cannot if ever they're comfortable it's a problem and they can't accept that fact and so they have to find some reasons whether it's the coming apocalypse or wokeness or other aspects that you know challenge their worldview even slightly uh, that they have to you know doomsday all of it I mean do you, do you think that's kind of informing that mentality right now or or why is it that the teal and the teal acolytes you're talking Balji David Sachs all of these people that come up yeah. in your book seem to spend all their time predicting uh, the end of times. And yet they're they're richer than they've ever been. I mean, I think all of us, right, like the grass is always greener, yada, yada, yada. But I think I think it's probably more like, you know, they're pressing their advantage. I mean, like they like they see an opportunity to, you know, whatever, influence politics in a way that is is to their liking to to further, you know, consolidate the power that they have acquired and to set things up to be even better going forward. But maybe there is some like deep psychological, you know, explanation for it. But I, I tend to think that they're playing politics, which is kind of what they've always been doing. It's just now, you know, they have a lot more attention uh, and, and, and more money to play with. Why is he not on Twitter, by the way? 
I mean, this guy seems like he never misses an opportunity to deliver his worldview to a witting or unwitting audience. So he's kind of, I, I, you know, first of all, he's very careful, right? He's not somebody who likes to be exposed in any way, right? And I don't just mean like have his secrets reported, although that's true, but like, I mean, emotionally exposed, like he, he's somebody who likes to have this kind of protective shield around him, right? And, and so, uh, you know, Twitter obviously pierces that in, in all sorts of ways, you know, and if you're, you know, Mark Andreessen, you could just block everybody. There are obviously like ways to like, you know, you, you know, maintain your filter bubble. But I think that, that the, there's something about the platform that is kind of antithetical to like Teal's personality. You also see like, yes, like he delivers these like really great one-liners, but like often his speeches are kind of meandering and they're self-contradictory and, and you really have to kind of work to find the, the provocations. Um, so, so I, I don't know, like, I, I think he's just somebody who's careful and, you know, kind of always like changing his mind. And so like those, you know, Twitter doesn't, doesn't sort of uh, work with that. Also, I mean, Twitter is Facebook's competitor. I mean, he's kind of had this position, you know, uh, for, for Twitter's entire existence that, that Twitter is awful and Facebook's awesome. Although I, I don't think he really uses much Facebook either. I was about to say, I, I did, how, how often is he posting his vacation he, shots? I, he's, no, he, he definitely has a Facebook page, but I, I, I think he's not a, yeah, he's definitely not an active, uh, he's like yeah. not getting in with your granny on QAnon or whatever. Where, where's uh, like, Seasteading and life extension, obviously two ideas closely associated with Teal. Is seasteading dead? He basically picked New Zealand over that? Or what's the state of seasteading? What's the state of life extension as you see it? I think both of these things were part are part of like the image and like and in some ways like his embrace of them and like the very public embrace was partly about like conveying something and you know conveying his both of those things like sort of convey parts of Teal's worldview like the life extension thing obviously is about technology being a possible way to like save us all and and seasteading is sort of a critique of of regulations and things like that seasteading is very much uh, I mean, the the idea of having living on a platform in the ocean is dead, but the kind of underlying idea that there should be options for wealthy tech savvy people to like leave the uh, you know the legal framework of the United States is like very much alive. I mean, Balaji is you know is is pushing this, and there are and a lot of the seasteading guys are right now involved in this charter cities movement, which is basically like a seastead on land where like, instead of, um, instead of like having a floating platform, we just like find a, um, you know, developing country that like really wants some, you know, really wants some entrepreneurs to live there. I'm, I'm I'm more sympathetic to the idea. I honestly reading the book, it is, it's like, well, just because we happen to be born at a certain time, we live in this world where like all, sort of governments are already set and locked. You can't create anything new and we should just accept it. Like if we have these innovative people, you know, let them experiment on government. I mean, uh, yeah, it sounds logistically hard, but I'm sympathetic. The the living on the sea in a rig sounds terrible to me. That part I don't like, but the, uh, the idea of a city governed by sort of, (laughs) I don't know, some blockchain or whatever, at least experimenting with it. I'm open to it. I mean, the thing is though, I agree with you. It'd be better to live in like Honduras than, you know, on an oil rig in the, you know, South Pacific or something. But like, I think that it really 
you know, runs counter to a lot of ideas that are pretty well agreed upon. You know, one of which is that, you know, when you are very successful, like you, you know, owe a responsibility to like give back to society and, and both in the form of, you know, paying your fair share of taxes, the same percentage. Um, you know, I don't think I don't think like in this worldview, we're not asking them to pay more than than a, than a normal person. We're asking them to just pay the same amount or even right. probably and in real reality, right, like a hell of a lot less like as right. a percentage. No, I, I support Peter Thiel paying uh, more than his fair share of taxes. And I think like basically that's what seasteading is about. It's not about finding new forms of governance. It's and, and when you actually listen to what the what they're saying, right, it's not about. Right. You can, you can have the same frame to the whole Miami conversation. They're like, Miami's great. It's like Miami has low taxes. Like simplify, yeah, I, that's the argument on seasteading. They're trying to evade taxes. They hate taxes, right? And I just think like trying to, and there and there are good reasons. Like the other rules that they're trying to get around, like there are good reasons we have those rules. Like uh, a lot of these guys are banging the uh, the lab leak drum, you know, twenty four seven. Like you know, it's going to be gain of function research is going to be a great, you know, it's, it's going to be great to do gain of function research in these seasteads or or like you know these like the the kinds of pharmaceutical experiments. Like well, one of the big reasons for doing this is to be able to do pharmaceutical experiments without the regulation of the FDA. Like I think there's some good reasons that we have the FDA, and and those reasons like often transcend national boundaries and, and things like that. So I, I don't know. I, I think it's, I, I'm not really sure. I think the ideology is mostly just getting around paying taxes and creating a, a better <laughs> regulatory climate for for business. Which, which is not a particularly new idea, right? I mean, that's always what strikes me as so funny about the Silicon Valley, you know, disruption and new new styles of thinking is that when you really bake it down to its essential elements of who it's benefiting, it really feels as pro-business as anything that like, you know, JP Morgan would have been in favor of or like- But this is what the, the crypto people would say. You have to be better at creating memes, right? Me- making a better meme of the same idea is the genius because then it right. catches on. If you present it as seasteading instead of lower taxes, you know, that, that idea has virality to it. The crypto thing is really interesting with Teal as well because- in a lot of like in its most pure and and uh, yeah, I guess like innocent sense or, or what it should be standing for, crypto is about returning Silicon Valley to its core beliefs, which is that it is, you know, it does somewhat independent of banks and, and it's decentralized and it like empowers individuals and communities of people who agree on things to create a system. Uh, and that stands in a part to almost like the monopolies of big companies, which are, uh, you know, in contrast to to big people, uh, or sorry, in contrast to individuality and and and, and freedom. On, and from that standpoint, I mean, where does Teal sit with uh, with crypto these days? Obviously, he he's in favor of it from like a libertarian standpoint, but you know, is he? But then he was like, China's gonna. He's all over the place. Right? He's so, all over the yeah. place, though, right? Well, okay. So he a couple things. Number one, you know, I think he's one of the kind of ideological kind of godfathers of this, uh, of, of some of these ideas. You know, PayPal was talking about these, some of the same ideas uh, about digital money as a way to kind of undercut the power of banks and regulators and even national sovereignty, you know, back in the, you know, late 90s, uh, early 2000s. Teal has owned Bitcoin. I assume he still owns, you know, quite a bit of crypto, although don't know. And he, you know, has been investing, you know, heavily in, in crypto companies. Eric, you, you mentioned the, the the China comments. My read on that. So just if, in case people don't know, uh, earlier this year, Teal described Bitcoin as a potential weapon of the Chinese state, which is a, a strange thing for a self 
professed China hawk and Bitcoin bull to to kind of put together in one right. sentence and kind of sent uh, you know crypto heads you know basically off the uh, you know it basically like it was a really great way to like get a lot of uh, crypto heads to sort of lose their minds um, because they're all trying to find out like sort of explanations for why you know right. why one of the guys on their team would say something like that now my read on it is that teal was pushing and maybe is still pushing um, an argument that's pretty similar to the one that Zuckerberg used on TikTok basically like if we do not create a friendly regulatory environment for crypto in the United States the Chinese will do so and they'll do it in a way that we don't like and that, and for that reason, you you know, don't mess with, um, you know, don't mess with American tech companies. I kind of think that's what he was trying to do with, with hmm. that comment. Although I don't really know. Yesterday, uh, when we were recording this, uh, you know, on the twenty first, uh, on the twentieth, he. Um, I hope I didn't break the fourth wall there, guys. No, we we it's love fine. breaking the fourth. Yeah. Wall. Okay. It's, okay. It's not live. He uh, said that Bitcoin is uh, maybe undervalued and it's also, or that he's underinvested in Bitcoin and that it's an indication of just like how broken, you know, society is, that Bitcoin is is worth, you know, 60 something thousand dollars a coin, which those two things are kind of in conflict because like, so if, if you think Bitcoin is an indication that society is about to collapse, I guess then it could still be undervalued. So I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, he's definitely like, interested in, in Bitcoin. I also think he's somebody, there were conspiracy theories around the, the China comments, right? Where people were like, oh, maybe he's trying to buy Bitcoin cheap. I thought that, yeah. And like, I don't think that's crazy, right? Teal's a trader and he's somebody who um, is, you know, he, he was he was a macro investor before he was a startup guy. Like you could totally see him uh, trying to come up with some trade. Uh, and I don't know, I, I, I don't know enough about like the legality of, uh, you know, of, of this kind of thing. So, so it's hard to know if, if that's even a possibility or whatever. But anyway, it's I think some of those conspiracy theories are, are kind of intriguing as well. Let's end on life extension. I asked you about that. And then we... we oh, yeah. Sorry. Went, no, it was my fault. We dragged you all over the place. But yeah, what is what is the state of life extension investment from Teal World? So my sense is that he was pretty engaged in it uh, about 10 years ago or a little more than 10 years ago and hasn't really done a lot. So he gave a bunch of money to this group called SENS that was started by this guy, Aubrey de Grey. Hasn't given anything to them in years. You know, and, and of course, Aubrey de Grey was then was dismissed from, you know, was fired. There's a sort of ongoing, I think, you know, allegations of sexual harassment. And it's unclear, like, what's going on with that group or, or what its future is. And, and he hasn't made that many investments in this field for a really long time. And that you know, combined with the fact that he was, you know, as far as I can tell, just completely indifferent to COVID, if not, if not, um, uh, b- being kind of happy about COVID, seeing Didn't it. Didn't he say it was like a moral disease or something? Talked about it as a, I think, a psychological symptom. Uh, but <laughs> I have to go back and look at the exact quote. But, but you know, his view was uh, Trump got COVID right. And maybe he didn't, maybe he, I think Teal would probably argue with Trump at the margins, you know, in terms of the execution or, you know, some of those crazy press conferences, whatever, but that Trump's like refusal to lock the economy down and his, you know, was correct and that people were freaking out unnecessarily about it. And to me, that's a a pretty odd position for somebody who has like a professed interest in life extension when you're talking about, you know, millions 
uh, around the millions of lives around the world being lost to this pandemic, you know, nearly a million or 750,000 or whatever in the U.S. So I, I kind of think the life extension thing is is a bit of a pose. Now, now since the book came out, I've his life of, extension. Yeah, right. That, that's, that's, that's always <laughs> it's, it's like it's libertarianism. It's like libertarianism for me, not for thee. It's like, no, my life needs to be extended, not yours. I'm in New Zealand. I've heard from some folks after the book came out and they've said, no, 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 he's he's still interested in it, just his own life. Right. So so it's kind of like, yeah, I have no doubt that he wants to uh, to increase his own lifespan and and stay healthy or whatever. But uh, I think in terms of like really backing research here, he he just hasn't done much and he doesn't seem all that interested as far as I can tell. In my mind, the best the best industry to be in uh, life extension, because if it doesn't work out, what are they going to (laughs) do? Thanks so much for coming on. It's a great book. Everybody should buy uh, The Contrarian, uh, especially if Peter Thiel's only going to become more and more powerful over time, I think. Uh, Good guy to know. Read about your new overlord. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, guys. Really, really appreciate the time. This is fun.